Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty from Denver, Colorado. How's things up there in Chicago, Larry? Jim, everything's going just fine up here. Thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you're having fun. It's actually been warm here, 60 degrees. Uh, I'm really excited for today's show. And uh, let me just throw it over to our other co-host, Robert Hunt, who's out in uh, lovely sunny California and always has the nice weather. Uh, Rob, how are you doing today? I'm great, Larry. I'm actually uh, getting pretty fired up, so I'm heading up to Lake Tahoe for seven days of skiing starting Friday. So finally get out of Southern California and get in the mountains, and hopefully uh, it's snowing up there at least a little bit tonight and tomorrow. So uh, hopefully it should be pretty fun. And uh, a friend of mine in the canvas industry was kind enough to give us a, a beautiful house on the South Shore. So we are having a nice family vacation. How wonderful. Good for you. That's going to be a great time. We'll be thinking of you here. Love it up there. It's always a good place. Before we get to our guest today, we've got a great guest that I'm looking forward to asking some questions. We've got to say goodbye to a deadhead. Uh, Lance Buckner passed away last night, and uh, I met him at a Grateful Dead concert at Red Rocks, June of 1984. My business was three months old. I didn't have very many clients. And being a rookie, I didn't have any business cards with me. <laughs> but we got talking during the show, and as we passed a joint around, they said to me, so you're an accountant? And, um, you know, we said good evening by that night, and a few days later, they looked me up in the phone book, the Yellow Pages, and gave me a call. And they've been friends and clients since 1984. That's unbelievable. Yeah, he was 70. He had some serious health challenges, kidney failure, that type of thing. So we'll be having a, a smoke for him this evening. Very sorry for your loss, Jim. And, you know, again, I think that might set the, uh, the tone for one of the themes we're talking about today. And two days ago, being March the 8th, is the, uh, the, I think, the 47th anniversary of the passing of Ron Pigpen McKernan, who was the original founding keyboard player for the Grateful Dead. And, you know, really the, the person that set the dead on post-psychedelic um, and more into a blues genre that really set the tone for the rest of their career in many ways. And so we were going to look back and think about some of the, uh, the great music that Ron P Pigpen McKernan gave us as well. And uh, we're really fortunate today to be joined by an old, old friend of mine, uh, Claudio Miranda, who is joining us um, from Northern California. Claudio, uh, as well as being a, a longtime uh, Grateful Dead fan, is also the, uh, the CEO and the founder of Guild Extracts, one of the uh, cutting-edge um, suppliers of extracts into the California cannabis market, whose team has done some of the most innovative work you can think of in the, uh, the extract side of the cannabis industry. So, Claudio, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. Really appreciate it. So, as we always like to, you know, kind of give some stats, you want to uh, talk about your experience on Ungrateful Dead Tour and kind of when you first saw your first show and uh, how many shows you ended up seeing and any highlights that stick out in your career as a, as a deadhead? <laughs> Uh, sure, yeah. Well, I start, first started seeing uh, The Grateful Dead around 1987. Um, I, was born in, I was born in Hollywood, raised in Southern California. So uh, I remember that being a, a Grateful Dead and uh, Bob Dylan tour uh, when they were doing their rounds in 87 and caught them at Anaheim Stadium. So that was really fun, a uh, very memorable show. So memorable that it just kind of completely changed the trajectory of my life. 
um, and really gonna, you know, subsequent to that, just like uh, like a lot of us, I just started catching every kind of show I could. Starting within Southern California, there was a lot of bounty there, you know, between kind of Irvine Meadows and Long Beach Arena and the Forum, and, and going down to San Diego and up to Aventura. So there was lots to see in that general area um, in that '87, '88. Um, and then kind of as the years went by, made my way up north and started seeing shows up in the kind of Bay Area in the kind of 89 time frame. Well, 88, 89, went to uh, Laguna Seca in 88 and then started to kind of branch my way across everything I can catch in California around 88, 89. And then from there started kind of jumping across to the East Coast and started doing kind of full tours. Um, as kind of 1990 hit, I was I was doing as many full tours as I could, catching really every show I could of, of every tour that I could possibly catch, and did that for a few years, and uh, and then really kind of jumped off around kind of the 93 time frame, and and still caught shows all the way to the very end, but uh, wasn't actively touring, and so. But really caught it all the way to the very end in 95 but in that kind of period from 87 to a 95 you know definitely saw somewhere between two and 300 grateful dead shows i would say somewhere uh 50 to 100 jerry garcia shows and and all the other kind of splinters of, of grateful dead uh, type bands uh, in between and so yeah it was, it was probably one of the best times of my life really loved it and you know i think as it relates to cannabis that's where i cut my teeth in cannabis and for a lot of us we were doing a lot of activity with cannabis throughout those touring years and that's really where i learned everything uh that that built the foundation for my knowledge and understanding and and most of all kind of respect uh for cannabis and its heritage and and everything that we've grown to develop over the decades so yeah well that's a great story man that's uh that you know from a deadhead's perspective that's very inspirational you know and I, I sit here saying, you know, I wish my parents were listening because they always used to give me grief. I saw 110 shows and I started in 82 and saw them through the end in 95, but got married in 87 and had kids. And that kind of slowed me down a little bit somewhere along the way. And, you know, my buddies in New York and my buddies in California would always talk, hey, if you live here, you can catch 20 or 30 shows a year, you know, without even leaving you know, your zip code sometimes or whatever. And, uh, and and I really love that. But I saw my first show ever in the summer of 82 at Ventura. And uh, it was a great place to see a first show and just fell in love with them and saw my second show in Syracuse. So I was already going cross country with them all the way. But uh, that's great. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's wonderful to hear that not only do you have the dead background, but it really kind of provided an, an entry for you into uh, cannabis. But, but here's my question for you. What I'm curious is how long have you been involved in cannabis? What did you start in and when did you make the switch, if you did do it this way, from flower over to extracts. Yeah, great, great question. So, um, you know, if you figure that, so, so before jumping on Grateful Dead tour and seeing the Grateful Dead, I was actively involved in cannabis. I started to kind of, uh, uh kind of cut my teeth in the, uh, in, in, in the kind of sales side of that, uh, when I was really in junior high school, um, and kind of that, that bled into high school. And then by the time Grateful Dead came around, I was like, oh, wow, here's a bunch of people just like me doing, <laughs> doing what I love to do. And so then, you know, like, like kind of started off as just kind of a local neighborhood thing, you know, kind of turned into more of the kind of Grateful Dead and, and, and doing that side of it um, and touring and whatnot. But, but really from, uh, from really early kind of teenage years all the way through college, you know, I ended up uh, uh, moving up to the Bay Area from the LA area uh, to go to UC Berkeley. 
Um, and so that's one of the reasons I kind of dropped out of uh, dropped off tour was to get kind of my education uh, back on rails. I went into back my way into UC Berkeley. And while I was at Berkeley, I um, actively started cultivating. Um, so I got really, really into cultivation, kind of paid my way through college as uh, by, by cultivating. And I was kind of living in the, uh, uh, the Student Cooperative Association at UC Berkeley. For those familiar, it was like the dorm for uh, partiers, right? Without any of the dorm rules. It was just cooperatives where we kind of ran our own rules. It was like Animal House on steroids. And so, uh, so anyway, I did a lot of cultivation for that period. So from kind of the that kind of early 80s to the kind of mid 90s, I had a very active involvement with with cannabis all the way up to kind of that cultivation side of it. When I graduated from uh, college, I got out of it completely and, and went into Internet, uh, Internet 1.0, 2.0 and really went on about a 15 year hiatus where I didn't do anything cannabis related other than just uh, consuming it. Um, and then I found my way back into cannabis around 2013, 14 uh, as a consultant, consulting with some dispensaries. Happy to kind of talk more about that. But long story short, as I re-entered the cannabis industry, um, now more on the kind of the white market end of it, um, and this is all in California, of course, um, I started to, uh, to, to get more involved on the retail side. And it was around that time I met some of my uh, co-founders over at Guild. One of those founding members was an extraction artist, um, and he really knew all the ins and outs of cannabis extraction. It's, it's not something that That's I uh, have ever done. Yep, yep, that'd be Brad. And it's not something that I've ever done as like a craft or a technique that I've ever developed personally. It was more so through my partnership with Brad. He brought all that know-how and skill set and innovation that kind of made um, a lot of the, the uh, you know, the popularity around Guild is very product driven. And what my role in that was more on the brand side. So if you think about Guild Extracts, it's kind of one part product and innovation, one part brand and kind of uh, all the design and kind of what we represent in the marketplace as a brand. And I'm really managing more of that brand side he's managing the product side and so that's how i got into concentrates as one of the facets of the guild family of brands which to this day is 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 the lead um dimension of of guild is is guild extracts so that's uh, that's the story well there. that's really interesting and i and i and i love hearing out of all of that because as a guy who you know got introduced to cannabis when i got to college in uh, uh the early 1980s you know for us there was never anything other than flower, although we didn't call it flower back then. And, uh, you know, it was usually whatever you could get your hands on. And it was nothing like uh, what we experienced today, but it really formed, at least for me and a lot of my friends, the real basis for our uh, cannabis experiences and, and the way we still experience it today. Five years down the road, where do you see the relationship going in the marketplace for flower versus extracts and whatever else is still yet to be discovered and, and turned loose on us? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think one of the interesting things we've seen as cannabis has kind of got popularized and more normalized and kind of has entered into the mainstream arena of just kind of consumer packaged goods. And, you know, part of it and for better or for worse, it's just being largely commoditized, like you would find like coffee and rice or other kind of uh, uh, um, commodities in the market. And of course, as a consumer packaged good, there's a big kind of branding and design element to that. 
But um, look, I think one thing that we're seeing is that all the different form factors and ways of ingesting cannabis is really what's novel. That's not to say we weren't ingesting cannabis for decades, right? We were always making, you know, cookies and, and brownies and people were always making hash, but, you know, we didn't have the range of topicals and edibles and elixirs and beverages. It's just, you've got this broad range of uh, uh, ways of consuming the product, as well as I think we've learned a little bit more. We've developed the science around the medicinal use cases. So you've got, you know, this universe of medical use cases, recreational use cases, a variety of form factors in terms of delivery systems of how people can consume cannabis and that's just increasingly eaten away at flour as the predominant kind of use case right flour used to be we would argue 99% of how people consume cannabis and then you know and you would have hash and maybe someone's homemade brownies is taking the very small end of that depending on where in the world you lived but certainly here in America I would say flour is was always in the high 90 percentile and then as cannabis is getting increasingly kind of popularized and mainstreamed it's uh, we're seeing all these other categories eat into flowers market share i think in most places you know it's 50 50 or it's increasingly sliding below 50 percent of total revenue um for for depending on the market and i think that will increasingly trend in that direction because what we're finding is as you find everyday americans whether it's your grandmother or a soccer mom or or your dentist or whoever it may be you know i think with flower just the fact that there's some friction in its use and there's obviously all the smoke that people don't want to inhale and there's the odor and all those other factors that a lot of these um, other um, uh, types of customers that are entering into the fold want more discrete forms of consumption, more healthy forms of consumption. And I think that as uh, brands kind of develop those um, the products that serve those use cases, we'll see flour continue to diminish in its, um, in its percentage of revenue that it kind of takes of the pie overall. And I would say the future, um, I, I would see it taking a third or less of total cannabis sales, uh, maybe in five years, uh, but somewhere in the 30, 40 percentile, I would say. Um, and then we'll have all these other great products that you can consume. And speaking for myself, you know, I, I'm increasingly loving to eat edibles, you know, and I'm loving to try some of the new products. And it's like on one part of my day, I'm consuming one type of product. On one part of my week, I'm consuming another type of product. And and I love it. And I think there's a lot of, you know, can of curious people entering the fold that are just like, wow, it's like a kid in a candy store trying all these cool different ways. And then it goes from macro dosing to micro dosing and, and non-psychoactive to psychoactive. And it's, it's just, again, like a kid in a candy store. Loving it all. Well, Claudio, uh, Jim Marty here. Got a few questions for you. And uh, yeah, I was just with a client last couple days, and uh, they're at about 53% concentrates to 47% flour. And I, I think that's pretty much true with the rest of Colorado. We are getting um, a lot of pushback on potency. Um, there's actually legislation in this session of our Colorado rulemaking House of Representatives and of course, you know, my comment is, hey, you know, you you drink less whiskey than beer and, uh, you know, watch your potency. But the other big pushback, some teachers are complaining, the kids in you know high school, junior high with their vape pens and edibles, it, it's uh, impossible to detect. But I would say this, those kids are not buying those at dispensaries and they're getting them somewhere else because we're very strict. I'm in my 60s and I have to show my ID twice, once when I go in and once when I pay. 
the, the black market, it's something here in California in particular is, um, I think probably, it's probably one of the most challenging aspects of running a legal cannabis business in California is that you're always, you know, on the one hand, it feels like you're going up against the regulatory side of it. That's it just seems to be, you know, increasingly oppressive, whether it's on the taxation or the compliance side of it. But then the other whole other end of it is that you're going up against the black market and not that not to paint it as an antagonistic relationship. But at the end of the day, we're fighting for the same consumer dollar. Right. If that consumer can buy an eighth of weed for, you know, twenty five dollars from their friend with no taxes and there's no packaging requirements and there's and there's no um, tiers of distribution or anything like that. It's just here's a bag plain and simple and all the cost of goods and all the other kind of uh, um, expenses that would be loaded into a normal business with taxes and everything is alleviated on that side. So no matter how you slice it, they're just able to compete so much more effectively uh, when you're dealing with a black market product. Um, and so that's that's a pervasive and persistent problem in our industry is you can always access you know products if you know the right people for cheaper. But you know, let's bear in mind that's mainly true of flowers and it's true of cartridges, as you mentioned, true of some edibles. But you know, someone who's looking for the next hottest, you know, a, a beverage, uh, a, can, a way of consuming a cannabis beverage is not going to readily find that from their local dealer, nor are they going to find a topical or suppository or whatever it may be, right? So only certain products, I think, have that black market factor. But no, I mean, that's a really big part of it. And I think uh, that that's the ironic and somewhat contradictory thing with, with law enforcement is, is that, hey, you guys are creating the problem, right? So long as you're making this an, an illicit, you know, criminal product and, and you're scheduling it in the way we are in this country, you're essentially driving and fueling that black market. And look, for me, it's something I'm very sensitive to because going back to kind of our Grateful Dead kind of roots here, uh, a lot of our friends are still, and, and I shouldn't be saying black market, like say traditional market, because black market does have a negative connotation and I don't want to be spinning it that way. This is a traditional market with a lot of good people trying to make an honest living in the ways that they've known to do it for decades, right? And so you've got this this really interesting dynamic in society where now with the onset of the regulated market, it starts to compete with a traditional market that, that for many of us, we're born out of the same thing, right? And so we're having in some ways um, be put in an antagonistic position against our own kind of heritage and, and brothers and sisters in the field, right? So it's just an interesting dynamic. But at the end of the day, you know, I always comment on, I remember the days back uh, in the in the late 80s when we'd be rallying in LA and down at the, uh, at the city center in LA going for legalization and being part of normal and being part of the movement for legalizing cannabis. And it's kind of like, what did we expect, right? Like we should have kind of expected that as, as you know, and I remember I remember the slogan was, you know, legalize, regulate, tax, educate. And I remember in the back of my head that slogan, legalize, regulate, tax, educate. We were picketing in front of uh, the, you know, in, in front of the, the city center there in, in L.A. And I'm talking like late 80s, right, advocating for legalization. And this is the outcome, right? It becomes part of just the normal business world. It gets regulated. It gets taxed. And then a lot of people get cut out of that picture. And it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I don't know, it kind of is what it is, I, I hate to say. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, careful for what you wish for, right? So anyway, I know that's you have a ramble there, but... Uh, no, that's good, Claudio. Yeah, well, we've started referring to it as the illicit market, getting away from the black market term. Would you comment 
on the potency issue. Well, it's funny you mention that because, you know, Guild Extracts really, you know, my company, we we gained our reputation um, from creating what's effectively the strongest hash ever known to man. You know, at the time, there was a race to the top of potency. You know, we all remember back in the day when you would smoke Mexican flour, that would be like five percent potency or something like that you got to, we got Thai stick I remember we were importing Thai stick out of the Long Beach Harbor coming in Thai stick Buddha Thai and we're like wow that shit must have clocked in at like 10 12 or whatever percentile it did now you're seeing flour that's you know flying well past 30 35 percent and it's it's crazy now with concentrates you get in 60 70 80 90 percent and at that race to the top kind of dynamic that we had with connoisseurs wanting ever increasingly potent product Guild Extracts came out with THCA crystalline, which clocks in at 99.99% pure. It is it is the strongest hash, technically speaking, ever made by man, and you cannot make anything any stronger, right? So, so on the question of potency, you know, we we can kind of go down in history, among others, of but really of creating the most potent you know, cannabis product that you can ever kind of make on a kind of per dose basis, right? Um, so that's so that's an interesting kind of question within that context. But but on that note, you know, I, I would agree, you know, there, there are, it, it's interesting, that's just kind of one dimension of cannabis that people who want to really, really get, uh, have, have a potent effect. And that's not just for recreational purposes of, of getting, quote, like faded or just trying to get a little bit higher buzz if you've been smoking all day. But there's people with real chronic pain out there that, that the higher potency really alleviates that chronic pain in ways that lower potency products can't. But what we're seeing on the opposite end of that spectrum is all these use cases for microdosing, you know, cannabis and and just speaking for myself, you know, I, I really enjoy that because like many of us here, we have very busy days and I've got a lot of stuff to do and and I can't be knocking myself out in the morning with a massive dab, right? Um, and so I love taking low kind of um, dosage edibles or something that's a high CBD to THCA ratio. And so look, to each his own, right? I think there is a place in the market for high dosage cannabis and a place in the market for low dosage. And that's, I think, the beauty of the cannabis industry is you have so many different use cases, so many different customer types, so many different form factors that I can't think of any other consumer product in the world or category that has that much range and diversity. That's really an amazing yes. thing. Yeah, I have a follow-up to Claudia. In my trip to the mountains this week, I visited a good client up in Fraser, Colorado. He won't mind if I mention their name in Ingati, one of the top in Colorado. Uh, but for the first time, I saw quarter gram joints. You know, with COVID, people aren't passing joints around. You know, you're out with your friends. Everybody takes their mask off and passes a joint around. So so much for worrying about COVID, right? But uh, no, quarter, qu quarter gram joints. Yeah. Amazing. It is amazing. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's that's actually an, an interesting development in the market that with COVID, um, the small kind of the selfies, the little kind of one man joints has become really popular. I think it's interesting because if you look at the data side of it, you'll find that there's a direct correlation between the onset of COVID and the popularity of very small format joints. And now what we're seeing, that's increasingly trending. And you can literally look at that on a graph starting in March of last year, and you'll see the uptick in sales for small format joints along with the uh, along with COVID as it kind of spreads uh, throughout the nation and the world. So interesting correlation there and how you should always be following market dynamics and thinking about your product strategies accordingly. 
and Claudio, I'll tell you, it's interesting. My youngest son uh, is freshman in college uh, down at uh, Illinois State University, and uh, he's, he's now spending second semester at home just because of all the COVID restrictions and everything down there. But we always joke with them. Normally, you send your kids off to school to start college, and you have to have the safe sex talk with them. This time, it was the safe marijuana talk. If you want to get high with other people now, you're each going to have to have your own joint. Or you're each going to have to have your own one-hitter, right? Things we never had to think about back in the day. And in fact, back in the day, it was the sharing of the joint that, you know, ultimately built community. That's how the guy next to you, you know, or maybe right in front of you who was a little too tall, if you'd start sharing your joint with him, eventually you could get him to move over a little bit and then you could see the stage again and, you know, harmony was restored. But, you know, in today's world, he's like, what am I supposed to do, dad? I can't bring a guy back to my room. Then we take our masks off and we sit there and get high together. It's like, you know, and you don't think about that kind of stuff, but you know, this is true that these individual ways to do it are, you know, probably where we're going in the future. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny you say that because I remember on Grateful Dead tour, like we we had a very specific ritual around cannabis consumption. You know, that we we use very kind of uh, sacred pieces that that we folded in very sacred cloths, and there there was very much a ritualistic aspect of it. And to this day, for a lot of people, there is. And if you you know if you can think of like an analogy, right? Like you have like a Japanese tea ceremony. Well, imagine if you go to someone who's steeped in that culture, and you're like, hey, here's a tea pill, right? Just just kind of take this pill. With your water, it just eliminates that entire ceremony and that tradition and that custom. And that's a very kind of core part of cannabis consumption for sure is the actual like ceremony and gathering and cultural kind of gathering of people around this way of of uniting and conversing and enjoying each other's presence. And and now, you know, now that we get all these other form factors that a minute ago, I was kind of the ceremony of consumption, so to speak, around things like flour. And certainly with COVID, that's, that's could be a big death nail in that whole process. So uh, interesting. Well, Rob, why don't you, uh, we haven't heard from you yet. You may have a question or two for your buddy here. And in fact, maybe you can help transition us uh, over into the Grateful Dead side of things. Because I know if it's Pigpen, we all have lots of things to say. Sure, yeah. I mean, first of all, a lot of the uh, stuff Claudio was talking about previously as far as his tradition in the Grateful Dead cannabis world. Um, you know, I, look, I took my cue from from most of the guys he hung out with. They're a couple of years older. So, you know, what I learned in the Grateful Dead community and around cannabis celebration and ceremony, I, I normally took from uh, from his crew from Berkeley and some of the guys are living further north in California. So, you know, much respect to Claudio and his friends back then for uh, for jumping me into the culture. And then, you know, as, as we are transitioning to the Grateful Dead here and thinking about, you know, small joints and uh, single service, uh, again, maybe Mickey Hart was once again ahead of his time with his Mind Your Head third of the gram joints that he put out a couple of years ago pre-COVID. Uh, so, you know, again, was he one step ahead of us in, in kind of thinking about how to address the, uh, the cannabis market in California. But, um, but yeah, jumping into uh, to our discussion today, you know, look, we're talking about something today that predates all of us as, as deadheads. And I don't think any of us, you know, got a chance to ever see Pig. I think that, you know, none of us were even really close. So, you know, when we all started thinking about the music we were listening to when we were young, you know, the stuff I was listening to initially was, you know, mid-80s stuff that was coming out. A lot of the stuff that Claudio was seeing, a lot of my first tapes were mid, you know, 80s Ventura and Irvine tapes. But, you know, the stuff that really got me jump-started was some of that early, you know, 1971 or 70 stuff. And a lot of it was Pigpen, like I think about 429.71 from Fillmore East that was just, you know, a monster. And I think about like the greatest alligator of all time, you know, I think about the alligator jam that came out of that. And just think, you know, here's a time where, you know, 
it, it completely blew me away by the, uh, the passion that somebody had. And, you know, I think about, you know, hard to handle that when the Black Crows finally put it out years later, everyone's like, oh, look at this amazing rendition of, of hard to handle. I'm like, it's just a ripoff of what Pig did in 71. You know, so... Uh, Unapologetically, you know, yes. Yeah, you know, so look, I'm a huge, huge Pig Pen fan. Uh, and Cloudy, I'm guessing, you know, growing up where you did or spending time at Berkeley, have you been down to Pig's Grave in, in, uh, in Palo Alto and gone down to uh, smoke a joint down at Pig's Grave before? You know what? I never have, actually. Well, well, for some of our younger listeners who may not know the history, Pigpen's father had a blues radio station in Oakland, California, and it provided a huge library of old blues records that the Grateful Dead just pounced on. And that's how you got that real bluesy harmonica going there in the right right from the beginning until he passed away in I believe he passed away in 1973. So that's kind of the history of Pigpen and he Jerry really felt he was the leader of the band. And, and when he passed away, Jerry had to step up. I, I think there's probably some truth to that. And, and you know, look, for me, Pigpen was, you know, kind of magical in his own way. Because, yeah, he played the, the, the keyboard a little bit. And, yeah, he did this. And, yeah, he did that. But he was the driving force, I think, of all the craziness behind him. He dated Janice for a while. I mean, he just, he he was he was in it up to his eyeballs. And, unfortunately, you know, he, he shone bright early and, uh, and then he burned out. But, you know, for me, you know, in the early stuff, in the psychedelic days, he fits right in. His Love Light rap, you know, that's part of the Dark Star Saint Stephen Eleven suite, fits right in there. You, you don't miss a thing that you're really going from hard psychedelics to kind of pigs, you know, open rapping and, and, and singing. Uh, but then, as you know, we were all just talking about the Port Chester shows a few weeks ago, uh, that's already a new direction for the dead. And boom. He slides right over into that. He's got songs on uh, Working Man's that are, you know, that are great songs, and songs on American Beauty that are that are great songs. He, I, he could he could you know ply his trade anywhere he wanted, and it's it's a shame that we never got to see him, and it's a shame uh, that he was that he's gone. But I have to tell you that uh, you know when I talk Pig, and we could oh, there's probably thousands of things about him I love, but the two that really stand out for me are number one uh, in a show from the Manhattan Center on April 6th of '71. And I picked this up when they put out that first original uh, box set with all of the original albums in it. I can't remember what they called it. Uh, it had the, the skeleton on the front. And um, on, for all of the albums, he always added bonus material. And so for this, uh, for uh, the, the Skull and Roses album, the bonus material were these songs from the Manhattan Center with Pig and the Boys doing Oh Boy into Hog For You Baby. And the thing about Hog For You Baby, if you haven't heard it, you got to go back and listen to it, is it's the only example I can ever see with he and Jerry singing lead vocal together and doing their best to try and harmonize with one another. And it's it's an absolutely amazing song. And because it's the two of them together, I, I it's my go-to song all the time when I need a good uh, a good boost. Manhattan Center of 4671. But the other thing for Pig that always stands out for me is in the middle of that Love Light rap. And, you know, it was always the same lap, rap about take your hands out of your pockets. and Get your hands out of your pockets. But where it always would all build up for me, and, you know, I, for years I never had any freaking idea what they were talking about or what they were saying is, you know, after the jam and everything else, and then all of a sudden it would build up to this big moment. And in that big gravelly voice of his, he'd get into that, you know, she's got box back nitties, you know, great big noble thighs working undercover with her boar hog eyes. And it was like, what the hell is he saying? I never knew, but I knew that that moment was like, he was leading right up to that. And that's when like the whole crowd would just go crazy, you know, and 
thanks to the internet now, you know, you can go find those kind of things and see exactly what the hell he was saying, even if you don't understand it. But, you know, for me, that was just such pig pen. For some of our, again, listeners who may not know the history, uh, pig pen didn't do a lot of drugs. He liked to drink, and that's what led to his early demise. There's stories how he and Janice could drink a whole bottle of Southern Comfort between the two of them at one sitting. But uh, so the road crew was always trying to dose his whiskey, and he kept a sharp eye out on his on his cocktails so he didn't get dosed. And then just in closing for my part, I just uh, was driving around the mountains of Colorado today, and uh, they had a little blurb on the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius that Bob Weir was talking about the song Operator and how that was, and that's on, I believe that's American Beauty. And uh, Bob Bob Weir was saying how different that song was for Pigpen, how it was so folksy and not, not bluesy. And that was Bob Weir's take on the song Operator. Yeah, one, um, one I think, as we know, you know, both Jerry and Pigpen, they both had the kind of their roots in blues and, and folk and jug bands and whatnot. And, and I think at least in kind of reading that history there that, that with that whole dimension of it, right, as Grateful Dead started to really explore that psychedelic rock dimension, you know, I get the feeling that like Pigpen found himself a little bit, you know, struggling to kind of flow with that difference in the style of music, right? That psychedelic rock, as we know, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it has some, uh, you know, there's some lineage there and some similarities, but but in many ways, it's, it's a clear break from that style of music. And from what I understand is that that was kind of part of the issue there is that he was the front man. And then as I think, you know, Jerry got involved and, uh, and started to become that front man and the rest of the band and they started to more further kind of express express that psychedelic rock dimension of the band i feel that pig pen probably increasingly found a little bit more of a backseat to that and i would agree with what you're saying larry there was definitely moments where they were able to 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 really um sync up and jam together in a really you know interesting way but i think probably behind the scenes that was part of that dynamic and that's kind of one current of it right it's just that difference in style between psychedelic rock and kind of that blues folk jug uh, um, kind of uh, um, heritage that they kind of came out of. And then the other part of it, it's interesting kind of bringing this back to cannabis, is that you have that like alcohol versus psychedelics, right? And we know that in cannabis right now, there is, you know, quite a, I wouldn't call it like a movement that's afoot, but but there is a cultural dimension to what's happening where people, and I saw this a lot in the Grateful Dead, right? When I jumped on Grateful Dead tour, coming out of the LA, you know, scene, which was sex, drugs, rock and roll, it was like, you know, drink, drink a handle of JD and just piss yourself and wake up in some part of like Hollywood and Vine the next morning. Like that was the culture, right? Whereas, you know, with Grateful Dead, I found myself like people, we weren't drinking as much. We definitely had enjoyed beer and whatnot, but that wasn't the culture for a lot of us, right? It was very much, you know, weed and psychedelics and it was about mind expansion versus, you know, versus, you know, mind blurring for, for lack of a better word. And I think there's kind of currently that tension within the cannabis industry that I am increasingly finding myself going to, you know, pre-COVID, going to like parties and events where there would there where there is no alcohol, right? Where you're doing right. a CBD and THC infused elixirs and beverages, and you're finding kind of the absence of alcohol. And we know that in the data right now, the alcohol industry is is really watching cannabis closely because they're seeing the sales of cannabis eat into the sale of certain alcohol products. So 
to pig pen and the Grateful Dead, right? Where it's like the alcoholism there. And that's ultimately, I think what he died from, right? Was, was kind of organ failure um, from what seemed to be from alcoholism. And, and anyway, it's just interesting if you think about those parallels that, that as the Grateful Dead found its kind of psychedelic wings and really started to move toward a little bit more of the dimensions of psychedelia, like what role did kind of hard alcoholism have in that paradigm? And what role does hard alcoholism have in the paradigm of kind of cannabis as maybe a different way to kind of recreate, right? Of to consume and, and do mind expanding, um, you know, products, right? Anyway, just an interesting parallel to think about. It also, it makes you think, you know, what effect um, Pigpen would have had on the band going forward? Because again, he really was, you know, the, the catalyst to drive him out of the psychedelic era into the more of the Americana, folksy, um, bluesy era that they went into for, you know, a period of time. I mean, going into the early 70s, it was heavily laden with blues and then started migrating over to more country as Bobby found his country roots. But, you know, you went through different, um, different periods. But the, uh, the bluesy side is something that the dead never really left, and I think we can all thank Pig for that, because as interesting as the psychedelic side was, there was also kind of a, uh, an unsustainability of just like, you know, all the way out there, pure psychedelia that we had, like, you know, from the Matrix shows of the Avalons in 80, in 68, to what we started seeing as much more compositional-focused um, Grateful Dead in the early 70s, that then segued into what many people consider to be their best era of, you know, just the, the post-Pig uh, Pen years, where he gave them the foundation that they really drove from with Keith and Donna afterwards. But, you know, would, would if he'd stuck around, would have been driven more towards, you know, Pig's uh, influence, you know, and as Jim said, Pig largely being seen as the leader of the band during that period, that would have taken the reins and said, let's take the direction of much more towards, like, a very, very folksy, bluesy band, rather than, you know, the, the marriage of all different styles that we came to know um, by the time, like, the, the era we started seeing the, the band. No, I think that's a great point, and, you know, you're right, it just goes into the bin of we'll never know. Um, but what I loved about Pig is, like I was talking about last time, you know, we, I've got the, you know, the box set from uh, the Fillmore West of uh, March uh, 1969. And I think my favorite song on the whole album is at the end of the third night when he trots out there and his voice is like completely shot and he tries to sing Hey Jude, you know, and he just, he's, he stumbles through it and he mumbles through it and he can't, you know, but it doesn't matter. It's Pig and he's out there singing and I'm sure that everybody in the audience was just thrilled to death to have him there to be singing a song that was, you know, a brand new Beatles song at the time. And there he was belting it out. You know, he wasn't afraid to, you know, to try. It's like, who would, that, who would challenge the Beatles with one of their own songs back in 69? Pigpen. And, you know, he got away with it just fine. So I have a, a Pigpen story. They were doing a show, the Grateful Dead, with the Doors back, uh, obviously, in the 60s, since Jim Morrison died, I think, in 1970. And... Uh, Ray Manzarek, the keyboard for, player for the, the Doors, uh, he noticed that he and Pigpen had the same keyboard. And he said, hey, man, why don't we just uh, play your keyboard all night and we won't have to set mine up? And Pigpen said, no. And Ray said, what's going on? What difference does it make? And Pigpen said, it makes a difference. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, this has been great, Claudia. We really appreciate having you on the show. Your depth and knowledge of the dead is, is always welcome uh, when we're hanging out because, uh, you know, as I tell all my friends who always look at me and say, God, you know, you know so much about the Grateful Dead. I'm like, no, nah, you know, really I don't. And there's people out there who really do know a lot about the Grateful Dead because they have seen 200 plus shows or, you know, because they have hung out with the, the people that have, you know, had the inside connections and all of that. 
And for me, what I really like about it is, you know, no matter how long I've been into them, I'm constantly learning new stuff about them, you know, and with all due respect to the Rolling Stones, I can't remember the last time I learned anything new about Mick Jagger or, you know, anything new about their music. And, you know, their music is great, but it is what it is. But here, you know, I could be talking to you and you could say, oh, have you ever heard the version of, you know, Warf Rat from this show? Well, gee, no, I haven't. And then I jump over to Warf Rat. And, uh, you know, there it is. It's like a whole new way to experience the song. So uh, we love it. We're really glad that you can join us. Uh, um, your 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 consult, uh, your um, your extracts business sounds really interesting. And one more time, please let our um, our listeners know how they can get a hold of you or uh, Guild Extracts if they're interested in, you know, checking out what you have. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, yeah. So if you want to kind of just uh, see us online, we're at guildextracts.com. And from there, you can get kind of links out to our Instagram and stuff. But on Instagram, we're at guild underscore extracts underscore. Uh, we also have a clubhouse room that that uh, that our co-founder here, Brad, that uh, we referenced is uh, uh, actively hosts. And he's 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 actively on clubhouse. So definitely seek him out, Brad Robertson. Um, and those are some ways to find us, at least kind of in, in, in digital media. Um, if you want to buy our products, you know, we are distributed statewide. And so, you know, we're not in every single store, but uh, you can generally find us in every major market in California. We do have a, um, you know, a directory on our website, like a store locator, if you want to find a store near you. You know, one thing I didn't mention is, you know, we've, we've been focusing really on the concentrates. We also sell cartridges and we have been kind of getting into um, edibles in the form of tablets, uh, non-psychoactive things like THCA tablets that have more of a medicinal use case. So, you know, we've, we've got an interesting set of products there, but definitely check us out online or try to find us in a store near you and uh yeah thank you so much for uh having me on board here happy to kind of keep chatting or whatever you'd like to do all right everybody this is jim marty saying goodbye from denver colorado and uh, one last shout out for my friend who passed away lance buckner okay jim well thank you very much uh sorry for your loss and our condolences to lance's family um and uh, hopefully you'll have lots of good memories of him to, to keep you going well into the future Again, a big shout out and thank you to our guest today, Claudio Miranda, for taking the time to join us and share great dead stories and lots of insight on uh, extracts and where we're going. As usual, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll catch you out next week. And uh, please remember to use your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on Podcon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.